The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. All right, let's go ahead and start. Did you all get a handout on the resurrection? Chapter 28. I think Eric was telling me, what are we up to now? How many lectures? This is 50. Two more, and we got a year's worth of systematic theology, so that's pretty good. Um, little by little, seeing the city of truth built in people's hearts. It takes time, doesn't it? Like they say, Rome wasn't built in a day. And, uh, you know, we go through things that you may think, what in the world am I going to use this for? Um, but all of it shapes what we think and who we are. But uh, I don't think you're going to wonder about the relevancy of the, tonight's topic as we look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, uh, which is the foundation of our faith. I think uh, as we make an apologetic presentation to the world of our faith, uh, we're constantly challenged to think about what is different about Christianity from all the other world religions. What is different about Christianity from Islam or Hinduism, Buddhism? And uh, I, I could answer at one level many, many, many things. But I think at, fir- at first pass, I feel that we have two things that no other religion has, and they set us apart very, very clearly. And the first is the Bible, and the second is the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. Those two things, I think, make Christianity unique in the world. Uh, no other religion uh, has uh, an empty tomb as the foundation. We, we really embrace history as a foundation of our faith, don't we? Uh, and, and really, as we're going to look tonight at the issue of the resurrection, I think that it's very plain, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, this whole thing, all of it, is worthless. Everything, your faith is worthless, all the churches, all the preaching you've ever heard. So basically, we totally embrace history as essential to our faith. Other religions do not need to do so. Uh, Buddhism and others, uh, it's just a way of thinking, a philosophy, a religion, uh, a mental state and experience. But for us, uh, we are totally dependent on a historical fact having really been true. The empty tomb must be true or our faith is worthless. Uh, so also the Bible we have, and, and in the Bible we have a difference uh, from any other religion. Now you say the Quran, um, but the Quran does not compare with the Bible, specifically in the area of predictive prophecy and some other things that make the Bible unique and different. Um, the Bible, I believe, by almost any definition you could give of miracle, the Bible is a miracle. It cannot be explained by uh, human reason, especially in this matter of predictive prophecy. But that's another message for another time. The resurrection, however, is before us uh, today. So we're going to talk about Christ's resurrection in particular. We're not talking so much about our resurrection or the end of the world, eschatology, end time teaching and all that. We're not getting into that tonight, although it certainly would be in our minds As we know, there's a link between what Christ uh, accomplished and what our future is. But we're focusing really on Jesus, on his resurrection, what is uh, happening with that. So we're asking the questions, what was Christ's resurrection body like? What is the significance of his resurrection body for us? What happened to Christ when he ascended to heaven, et cetera, and what's meant by the states of Christ? Uh, By the way, those last two questions will be handled handled on the next handout, and they're not here. This is all resurrection, these 14 pages on this handout. So we'll get to... um, you know, the ascension and the uh, states of Christ in the next um, handout. So we're looking tonight at the resurrection. We begin with the New Testament. There is overwhelming evidence, overwhelming evidence 
uh, for the resurrection in the New Testament. The gospel's evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. Matthew 28, 1 through 20, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20. All of these things testify to the resurrection. Now, I think I enjoy uh, uh, apologetic books. I enjoy reading evidence that demands a verdict or, you know, who moved the stone or any of these other things. We'll talk about them, you know, shortly. But um, I think it would be a mistake for us to um, really embrace uh, extra biblical evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. I don't think God meant for that to be the foundation. He meant for us to know about Jesus through the Bible. And so, therefore, I think it's right to say we're not going to get almost any testimony to the empty tomb apart from the New Testament, and that's as it should be. It's the New Testament that tells us the tomb was empty. And so I think that just as our faith is dependent on the empty tomb, our knowledge of the empty tomb is dependent on the New Testament. Uh, We must have the New Testament's testimony. It's the apostles that tell us that Jesus rose from the dead. And I, I actually think, I've said this before, but it's so vital for me. Take a minute and look at John chapter uh, chapter 20. And uh, I think you'll see there uh, what, what I'm talking about, how essential the apostolic testimony is uh, concerning the resurrection. This isn't on your outline. Um, is that fair? We'll easily get through the 14 pages tonight. So I figured I'd put some extra material in here so that uh, we'd fill the time. Do you believe that? You think we're going to get through 14 pages tonight? What do you think? No, okay. But But I want to share this because I think it's really, really important. Uh, John chapter 20, and uh, this is the empty tomb. And there you have the account of Peter and John running to the empty tomb. And they bend over and they look into the empty tomb. And what do they see inside the empty tomb in John 20? What do they notice there? I'm I'm reading verse uh, 1 through 9 here. What, What do they see when they look into the tomb? They see the strips of linen lying there. What else do they see? Yeah, no body. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> More than anything, they don't see the body. But what else? The, the head covering folded up by itself off to the side. Um, and so this is physical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Obviously, primarily that there is no body, but also the state of the tomb, the way it looks, the whole thing is just screaming uh, resurrection. It is physical evidence for the resurrection. But here's the interesting thing. It's an aside almost, but I don't think it's an aside. I think it's foundational to our faith. If you look at verse 9, somebody read John 20, verse 9. As yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Now, why do you think John puts that in there? After the account of how how the apostles went in there and saw all the physical evidence for the resurrection, they still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Why is that so important? Well, I'll tell you why. Not one of us will ever get to look at those linens. None of us will be able to look at the head covering. None of us will. We never will. And you may say, well, I've been to Jerusalem. They have a shrine there and all that. Look, I, mean, I, I, don't, I don't have any idea. I mean, there's lots of caves in that area and I have no idea. And it really is not important to me whether that is the actual cave and all that. You understand now how impossible it would be for that to be evidence of anything at all. It's been 2,000 years now. It's just a hole in a rock somewhere. It must be from Scripture that we believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That's it. That's the only thing we've got. And it's, and it stresses, John stresses this because he says he saw and believed. He saw and believed. Uh, it says that, where is that? In, in verse uh, eight. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. As over against, he read and believed. And why is it, why is it so important that we know that we must read and believe? Because that's what the whole world gets. 
Even 2,000 years later, we still can read and believe. And so this is the whole point at the end of John 20 as well, isn't it? Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, how are we going to do that? On what basis? Well, on this basis, on the basis of the word of God. We read and believe. We hear and believe. We don't have to see and believe, and we will not be able to see and believe. It's not given to us. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him. We believe in what we do not see. It is faith that justifies. So the evidence for the empty tomb is going to come from the New Testament. And boy, is there plenty. There is plenty. Now, you may say, this doesn't help us in the apologetic. The world doesn't accept the Bible. Well, if the world goes on not accepting the Bible, what will we say of them? What will we say about the world that goes on not accepting the Bible? They're lost and they will never be saved and they will die in their sins. You understand that? So at some point, they must come to accept the Bible or else they will not be saved. It's not going to be by reading Josh McDowell that they get saved. What Josh McDowell is going to do is get them to read the scriptures and believe the scriptures. That's what good apologizes are. You had a question? Okay, just stretching. Okay, that's fine. Me too. Uh, just... So, at any rate, the gospel evidence is overwhelming. We have these eyewitnesses. We are, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. You might say, well, the church is built on Christ. Well, of course it is. But Paul says that in Ephesians 2 because he wants us to know it's built on an eyewitness testimony. First John 1, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have handled, what, we've, what we have experienced, we proclaim to you. Who's the we there? You got, you got to be so careful there. Every time we read we, we think it's all Christians and I'm included. It is not. That first John one, the first few verses of first John is the we is the apostles, those who were eyewitnesses, those who had the advantage of seeing they proclaim Christ based on that physical evidence. And we have to believe them or we don't. We do believe, don't we? Because the apostles have told us that Jesus rose from the dead. At any rate, that's just important. It's so important for us to realize the New Testament evidence is what we have. Now, if you look at the book of Acts, for example, and I went through this one time. I was going through the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, so to speak. And you got 28 chapters. And, and I began to notice the number of times that the apostles referred to the resurrection. The number of times they just, just mentioned the resurrection of Jesus uh, in their preaching especially. And it, it, it was in there again and again and again. Chapter 1, for example, when the early church was seeking to replace Judas as an apostle, the job description was stated in this way. Acts 1, 21 and 22, it says, Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. That's the job description. An apostle must witness to the resurrection. That's what he does. Now, there's more than that. But that is kind of a summary statement of what the apostles must do. Um, in the summary of the apostolic ministry, Luke tells us in Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and much grace was upon them all. You get the feeling that every single day that the apostles preached in Jerusalem, they referred to the resurrection. Every day they said the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. Jesus has been, has been raised from the dead. And almost every ex extended example of apostolic preaching you get in the book of Acts contains at least one reference to the resurrection. Peter Pentecost, certainly in Acts 2.24. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter at Pentecost. Peter again at the temple after healing the lame man. Acts 3.15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Peter at the Sanhedrin after healing the lame man. Acts 4, 9 and 10. If we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple. 
and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Jerusalem, it is, people of Israel, sorry, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Note the you and God dichotomy there. You crucified, God raised him from the dead. Could it be you're working at cross purposes from God? And they actually do this frequently. They blame the Sanhedrin for the death of Christ. And then there's the apostles again at the Sanhedrin after being arrested. Acts 5.30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. Again, that same emphasis of the resurrection, focusing on the resurrection. Then again, Peter at Cornelius' house, Acts 10, 39 through 41. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So here we have clear uh, evidence of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ um, in the apostolic preaching. We also have Paul and Barnabas at Pisidian Antioch. Uh, this is a very strong reference, Acts 13, 29 and following. It says, when they had ca- carried out all that was written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days... He was seen by those who had traveled with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to our people. We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us their children by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. The fact that God raised him from the dead never to decay is stated in these words. I will give you the holy and sure promises, uh, blessings promised to David. And so it is stated elsewhere. You will not let your holy one see decay. For when David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep. He was buried with his fathers and his body decayed. But the one whom God raised from the dead did not see decay. So again, the the preaching of the empty tomb, the preaching of the resurrection, essential to what it is that the apostles were doing throughout the book of Acts. Again, Paul in Athens. Uh, it says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, and uh, as well in the marketplace day by day, day with those who happened uh, to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then again in his sermon uh, at the Areopagus, he said that God has given proof that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. God has given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Then we get the reaction, uh, bottom of page two and on page three. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, (laughs) sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. So this is interesting to us. At any rate, the apostolic preaching of the resurrection. Uh, It is foundational. Now, I I quote these at length just to give you an impression for your own personal uh, gospel ministry. As you witness, please refer to the resurrection. I mean, we we focus so much on on the death of Jesus, don't we? On this bloodshed on the cross, and rightly so. But I'm just saying, it also says, as we're going to get to later on, he was raised to life for our justification. What an interesting connection there. Resurrection and justification. Let's at least say this. Let's not divide what God joined together forever. Namely, the cross and the empty tomb together. That's the gospel, not just the one. And so we must refer to the resurrection. And it's interesting. The apostles seem to lead with the resurrection, not with the cross. 
And you know why? Because everybody's in slavery to their fear of death, aren't they? People know that they're going to die someday. They know that they're going to face the end of their life. They've seen it. Their relatives, their mothers and fathers, their brothers and sisters have died. Maybe their children. They know that death is right there. We Americans, we hide death, don't we? For the most part, people die in hospitals. Many times they die alone. Even though they have a loving family, still, it happens. Uh, in, in the old days, though, century two or whatever, death was just right there all the time. I was reading about John Owen, uh, whose wife bore him 13 children. One of them survived to adulthood. She died when she was 20. All right, so you think about having 13 children and he survived all of them. So here is a man in the 17th century who was just surrounded by death all the time. Well, that's not unusual. That's the way it's been. That's the way it's been for a long, long time. We, all of us, were facing death. And therefore, like someone once said, uh, a philosopher, a French philosopher once said this, I only asked two questions about religion. Number one, did anyone ever find a way to defeat death? Number two, did he make a way for me to defeat it? (laughs) <laughs> All right. It's not enough that they did it. I'm happy for him. But I want to know, can I defeat death? Can I live forever? Is it possible for me to live beyond the grave? It says in another place that God has said eternity in the hearts of men. So we know we have a sense that death is an intrusion. There's something almost unnatural about it. Uh, that's why we grieve over it. And it hurts. And we think, no, the relationship should go on beyond the grave. Well, all I'm saying is that Jesus' resurrection is the answer to that. So I think we actually ought to put it up front. Put it out front. Would you be interested in somebody who can tell you how to live forever? Would you be interested in somebody who defeated the grave? You better believe they're interested. So let's, let's, all I'm saying is just like the apostles did, let's talk about the resurrection of Jesus. That's a strong point for us, isn't it? Very attractive to those who are lost. Uh, It's very strong evidence that Jesus is everything he claimed to be. Let's uh, refer to the resurrection. Now, the resurrected Christ appeared to Stephen and Saul. Uh, this is great evidence. Um, so we, we, we're just talking about how the New Testament teaches the resurrection. It's not too hard to prove that, now is it? That the New Testament teaches that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But in Acts 7, 55 and 56, it says, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Again, evidence of the resurrection. Uh, Acts 9, 3 through 5, as Paul, or Saul, uh, as he's known at that point in the account, near Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? uh, Saul asked. Uh, An incredible question, by the way. I mean, think about it. Who are you, Lord? I mean, meditate on that sometime. You know, whoever you are, you're awesome and powerful. I just don't know who you are. I mean, obviously, the, the blinding light, the power and all that. Who are you, Lord? And then comes the, the, the three words that change his life, three words in English. I am Jesus. I mean, that shatters his whole worldview. Everything changes when he hears that. Jesus is resurrected. He's alive. Yeah, go ahead, Stephen. Well, he sees Jesus standing. It's hard to hard to stand if you're not alive. And so he's still alive. Uh, so it's evidence that Jesus is still alive. We'll get to that. Okay. We'll talk talk about it. Yeah, go ahead. I've heard about that. Don't be, don't be uh, sad. You're supposed to rejoice because you're yeah. to a better place. 
Yeah, some people call it like a coronation day or it's a send-off and all that. I actually don't think that's incredibly appropriate. I think the reason we weep is, is we know that we will never see them again in this present world. We also know this, that God gives many blessings to us through other people. And we'll never get those again because that person's gone. People are unique. I mean, you think about how Job lost all of his possessions, but he also lost all of his sons and daughters. Now, at the end, he got all his camels back. And I don't know, unless you're a camel expert, one camel's as good as another as far as I'm concerned, right? If you had 3,000 camels before and you get 3,000 camels after, it's even Stephen. You might even have 5,000 camels and you're even better off. But that does not work when it comes to sons and daughters. You know that well. Yeah, sure. He didn't, you know, he didn't early on. But you look at toward the end, after the Lord, you know, speaks to him. What does he say? But I repent. Well, what's he repenting from? Well, some of the things he says. He says some hard things as the, as it goes on. Now, early, you're right. Early in the account, he says he he didn't charge God with any wrongdoing. But if you keep reading, there's some verses where you read and say that sounds an awful lot like charging God with wrongdoing. So I think he gets to the point, and this is so human, isn't it? We're suffering, we're hurting, go through hard times, and you start to talk about it, start to complain. And so the more Job talks, and by he, he talks a lot in that book, all right? Uh, more he talks, sooner or later he's going to say some things. All I know is he repents at the end of the book, and the Lord accepted his repentance. There were some things he needed. And he said, I, I put my hand on my mouth, I'm not saying anything more. So that's, oh, that's, a, that's a good question. Well, let's, let's keep going, all right? resurrection um, of Jesus Christ. Now, the epistles, the, the letters, constantly assume um, that about Christ, that he is a living, reigning Savior and King, and they make open statements to that effect. Uh, Romans 1, 1 through 4, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be the apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how Romans begins. You guys remember when I preached on Romans 1, 1 through 4, don't you? <laughs> nah, or you were there years ago. <laughs> I haven't been here that long. Come on now. That was a long time ago. But right, right at the beginning of Romans... Paul says the evidence that Jesus is the Son of God is that the Spirit raised him from the dead. So, all right. Uh, moments of levity, I do love them. Thank you, Herb. All right. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8. And I've alluded to this. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 is, is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible on the resurrection of Christ. Because it seems that there were some that were saying there, are, there is no resurrection. And, and Paul, you, you get the sense in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul's saying, I just can't understand Christianity without a resurrection. I mean, if there's no resurrection, let's eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Who cares how you live if there's no resurrection? But 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 8 says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, He appeared to me as to one abnormally born. 
Why does he go through all that? Why does he go through this list of all the people who saw Jesus? Because this is absolutely foundational to our faith. And God has abundant witnesses. Do you ever wonder about the 500 who saw Jesus? And, and you know, uh, Josh McDowell and others have made the point. Can you imagine being in a court trial where there are 500 witnesses ready that the, the attorney has 500 ready to testify, all of them, that such and such happened? Well, how many of those do you need to hear before you say, okay, okay, that's, that's enough? I mean, you'd think just two would be enough, but you've got plenty of witnesses that Jesus was raised from the dead, clearly and essential to our faith. Galatians 1, 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers with me to the churches in Galatia. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel. Do you see how often he links the resurrection to the gospel itself? Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. The gospel is the resurrection. Good news, right? We tell you the good news, what God promised our forefathers. He has fulfilled for us their descendants by raising up Jesus. That is the gospel. Death has been defeated. What God threatened, Adam, has come true. You sin, you die. The wages of sin is death. God has taken that into himself and has defeated death. Death is the final enemy and we uh, have a great, great and a glorious future. That's the good news. And so this is my gospel. It says in uh, Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, uh, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then 1 Peter 1, 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Do you know that your hope is a living hope? It's alive. And uh, it's totally linked to Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus can be killed, your hope can die. If Jesus cannot be killed, your hope cannot die. So we have an eternal hope, a living hope, linked totally to the resurrection of Christ. And then finally, of course, the book of Revelation repeatedly shows the resurrected living Christ reigning in heaven and centers on his return to earth to complete the conquest over his enemies. Revelation 1, 12 through 14, this is what John wrote. I turned around to see the voice of the, of the one that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. That's Jesus. And then, and then clearly in Revelation 22:16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony uh, for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright morning star. Jesus is still alive. He's there speaking. Um, also, he says he's uh, in Revelation that uh, he is the firstborn from the dead. says that in another place as well. Uh, this historical evidence, all I did is just kind of survey. You know, we've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of them have resurrection accounts. We didn't read them, but they're all there. You can read them. We have the book of Acts, how the apostles consistently re- refer to the resurrection in all of their preaching. Um, we have the epistles, and all I did was give you a sampling, but the epistles just consistently refer to the resurrection. And then we have the book of Revelation. Foundational to that is that Jesus is still alive and he's coming back. He's going to reign forever and ever. Now, when you look at that, how do you mix in with that the uh, liberal understanding of the resurrection as kind of the spirit of Jesus, like the spirit of Christmas or, or that he didn't actually rise from the dead, but we all kind of our hopes are tied with him that, you know, I don't I don't even know how to understand it. I don't think the apostles could understand it that way. Jesus rose or he didn't. 
Either you could put your finger in the, in the nail holes or you couldn't. Either he ate that piece of broiled fish or he didn't. Either he's alive or he's not. And if he's not, shut it down. Find another religion because Christianity is not it. That's the way they thought. But it's not the way that the, uh, the liberal theologians think from the, you know, in the 19th and 20th century on into the 21st century. A denial of the resurrection is a denial of the gospel. Without the resurrection, we have no gospel. That you know. Okay. So the historical evidence is so powerful and so central in the New Testament that it has been the grounds for the conversion of countless people in history, especially of those who sought to disprove Christianity and were persuaded by this evidence. Frank Morrison, who moved the stone, um, Anderson's evidence for the resurrection, Josh McDowell referred to, Lee Strobel more recently, the case for Christ. All of these just kind of work with this whole apologetic line of uh, Jesus' resurrection as proof of the truth of Christianity. Okay, well, what was Jesus's resurrection like? Let's talk about the nature of the resurrection. What are we discussing? Well, first of all, it is different than what Jesus did to the dead people he ministered to. It's different than what he did to Lazarus. It's different than what he did to Jairus's daughter. It's different than what he did to the, uh, the widow at Nain's son. Those were resuscitations. Uh, as a matter of fact, he, he says concerning Jairus's daughter, she's not, she's not dead, but asleep. You know, and so he likens it to sleep. And when he's around dead people, that's about all it is. All right. It's it's no different than just, hey, wake up, jostle them a bit and they come up. All right. But only he has that power. All right. And clearly it says just as the father has power to raise the dead, even so he's given the son power to raise the dead. So Jesus has that power. But to, uh, around around Jesus in his earthly ministry, dead people were like sleeping people. He even says that about Lazarus. Lazarus has fallen asleep and we must go and wake him up. And then they think, well, if he's sleeping, he'll get better. He's doing fine. No, no, Lazarus is dead. So clearly Jesus means sleep equals dead. But all they were were resuscitated. What do I mean by that? What do I mean by that? What do I mean by resuscitated? Brought back to what kind of life? The same life they had before they were sick. The same life they had before they died. But Jesus wasn't. That's what I'm saying. There's a difference before and after. He's resurrected. They're resuscitated. And therefore, it is important for us to understand there has been so far only one resurrection in this sense because it includes what we call the resurrection body. And none, nobody else got that. I know a bunch of holy people were, were resurrected in some sense when Jesus died. Lots of that, that happens. You know, Elisha uh, raised people from the dead. Widows received back their dead. All that. But we know these are all resuscitations. Why? Because these people are all dead now. All of them are dead. I mean, wouldn't it be great to go talk to Lazarus and ask him, what was it like? But you can't. He's dead. And he's been left dead this time. Uh, so there's, there is a definite difference between resuscitation that Jesus did, which we can call resurrection. That's okay. Um, but resurrection as Jesus experienced it. Yes. Yeah. Um, I guess what we have there is a foretaste of his glory. Uh, you know, Jesus prays in John 17, Now, Father, uh, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the creation of the world. So I think the blinding light and the clothes whiter than any launderer could make them and all that kind of thing is just a foretaste of uh, Jesus' resurrection glory. But we would not say it's resurrection uh, because, again, he goes back to his previous state at that point and just continues to minister as he had before. Whereas the resurrection is a permanent transformation where he is forever in whatever it is we mean by a resurrection body. That didn't happen on the Mount of Transfiguration. 
So I don't know entirely what happened there. I wasn't there, but we do know it had to do with blinding light and a display of Jesus' glory. Yeah, Tom? Yes, sir? Okay. Just, um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, just a vision, just a vision. All right, so it's not just a resuscitation. All the other resurrections done by Jesus, the apostles, the prophets are merely restorations to normal life. If Jesus were like them, then he would be subject, friends, to aging, to disease, to suffering, and death again. But he can never be that again. So he has been resurrected. It says in Romans 6, 9, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. That's the key thing. The key issue is can he die again? Ask that of Lazarus. Ask that of Jairus' daughter. Ask that of all the others. Can they die again? They have died again. Either that or they're keeping themselves very well hidden and nobody knows where they are. They're in some kind of hidden valley somewhere. Um, But no, they're dead. Jesus cannot die again. That's the essence of resurrection. And that's what we're waiting for, aren't we? Where there be no more death or mourning or crying or pain where we cannot die again. That's our future. That's what we're going to. Jesus cannot die again. Jesus was raised in the first and only resurrection body that presently is in the universe. Jesus is in a resurrection body. No one else is. No one else is. Uh, They are absent from the body, present with the Lord. Jesus is not absent from his body. You understand that? There's a difference. The departed saints are absent from the body. Jesus is not. He's present in the body. That's what Thomas saw. That's what all the others saw. He's in the body. So there's a difference. Jesus has the glory of being the firstborn from the dead. He has the glory now for 2,000 years of the only one in a resurrection body. That's his unique glory because he is the son of God. All right, so first of all, it's a different thing than Jairus' daughter and all the others. Secondly, um, there is continuity but difference. This is really kind of interesting, isn't there? There is in some sense a kind of a continuity from Jesus' previous life through his resurrection body. But there's also obviously some differences too. Continuity, but difference. And that will be true of us too. Uh, I know we're not talking tonight about our resurrection, but there's continuity and difference. All right? Many resurrection accounts have as a major feature the fact that people who knew Jesus well did not recognize him. Okay? That's a, that's a major feature. Uh, in Luke 24, 13 through 16, it says, That very day two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And uh, they were talking with each other uh, about all these things that had happened. But while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Very interesting statement there. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Uh, It's an accurate translation, a good translation. That's why I gave the ESV this time. Uh, The Greek is strong here saying that something or some power had restrained or seized or held their eyes from recognizing him. Later on, however, the power of spiritual and physical sight was given them. Uh, Luke 24, 30 and 31. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. So um, clearly, Jesus kind of controls whether you recognize him or not. If, if he doesn't reveal himself, you don't recognize him. If he does, you do. And so he just kind of controls that. Mary Magdalene also had trouble recognizing Jesus in John 20, uh, 14 through 16. She thought he was the gardener. Okay? Now, I don't know if he bore a resemblance to the gardener or what the gardener was like, but she thought he was the gardener. Now, this is a woman who knew him well, who watched him die. And she thought he was the gardener. Very interesting account. Remember how she says, Sir, if you've put him somewhere, tell me, and I'll go get him and bring him back. That is not something you even want to imagine seeing Mary Magdalene do. 
with the dead body of Jesus. But she wasn't thinking clearly. She did not have the power to bring him back. She just wanted to be near Jesus' corpse. Jesus had something better in mind, though, and that is for her to be near his resurrected body. And so he says, Mary, and she knows who, who, uh, the, who he is. Again, um, uh, uh, the disciples along the shore in John 21, 4, did not really know it was Jesus who was there calling out. It's not until they catch that large catch of fish uh, and then John says, it's the Lord, and they uh, recognize him. Now, Wayne Grudem in the uh, Systematic Theology seeks to downplay this. Um, he really does. He labors. I'm given a kind of a different slant than Grudem did. Um, he really totally downplays this. He tries to explain how it's reasonable to think that they would not see him, maybe it was from a distance or whatever. Um, and the reason he's doing this is he really wants us to understand that Jesus was in a body. He's not a phantom. He's not a ghost. And, and I agree with that, but I think we can uphold that Jesus is in a physical body while still maintaining the, the strange encounters Jesus seems to have with people who knew him well but didn't recognize him. So clearly there's something going on with Jesus' body. And Grudem just wants to be sure we know it's a body. He's physically resurrected from the dead. I agree with that. I, he's just trying to protect that. All I'm trying to do is be, is be honest with these, uh, not that he's not, but uh, with Luke 24, that, that these people did not seem to recognize him. <laughs> All right, so Grudem is going to emphasize the fact that many passages show that Jesus was readily recognizable to people. For example, Matthew 28, 8 through 10, it says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell the disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. No hesitation. He says, basically, morning. And Kyrie, um, it's just a simple greeting, everyday greeting, and they just immediately fall down and worship Jesus. There's no hesitation. They know who he is. All right. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Now, Grudem says any differences were perhaps caused by the fact that Jesus was no longer under the strain of suffering and having to go to the cross and was now in a perfect body. Well, that's possible. I think what I like to look at it differently is from Luke 24. If Jesus reveals himself, you see him, you know him. If he doesn't, you don't. And I think that fits in more theologically as well. You're not going to see the resurrection unless he reveals it to you. All right, thus there seems to have been strong continuity and difference in the resurrection body. This continuity is seen most dramatically in Jesus' wounds, his wounds. And you know this whole story about Thomas. On the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. <clears throat> Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Now that's an incredible account. Foundational, the, in my opinion, the climax of John's gospel. <clears throat> the climax is, in my opinion... Uh, Thomas's confession. I think that's the whole point of John's gospel is that you, the reader of John's gospel, may be able to make Thomas's confession to Jesus, saying to him, my Lord and my God. 
And you remember what Jesus said, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet have believed. What was the evidence that moved Thomas to do that? It was the continuity between Jesus' death and his resurrection body. And so he's got these wounds in his hands and in his side. Now, that raises all kinds of interesting questions, doesn't it? Is there going to be continuity with our wounds, for example? All right. Uh, You know, if you have a knee replacement surgery or if you're going to have some other thing, is there going to be continuity? I think we must acknowledge that Jesus' wounds are in a special category of any other wounds there have ever been in history. By his wounds, we are healed. Right. That's the foundation of our ability to even be in heaven. And so it says in Revelation, I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So apparently Jesus still has some physical reminders of his crucifixion. And uh, I think we just need to acknowledge they are in a different category than any wounds that have ever been given or received in all of human history. And so God, to glorify Jesus and to remind us of his crucifixion victory, allows him to continue continuity. We notice there's no marks on the face, from the, as far as we know, from the crown of thorns or from all the bludgeoning you received, the scourging or anything like that. So I think that even there, there's just representations of the wounds. You know, it's not the full thing. He's not forever looking horrible, like uh, so disfigured beyond that of human recognition, like it says in Isaiah 53. He's not that way. He's not physically destroyed. But there is a continuity there with the wounds and with the, you know, in the hands and the side. Thirdly, definitely, we're talking about a physical body. Definitely. A physical body. We believe in what we call the bodily resurrection of Jesus. And so there's a number of passages in the Gospels that help us in this direction. Luke 24 is the best. 36 through 43, it says, While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened. Frightened. Now, here's the thing. Thinking they saw a ghost. Now, what do you think that means, a ghost? What is a ghost? It's a spirit. A spirit. So they're thinking they're seeing a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. That is very mysterious, isn't it? Here's Jesus in his resurrection body. He's got flesh and bones. He is no ghost. He said, touch me. So that means if you go up and you touch him, you're going to have a similar, or I guess I would have to think, exact same experience that you would have had before he was crucified. That's why he's using it as evidence. If it were like radically different, you'd think still, oh, this is different. But he says, touch me, feel it. It's stuff. It's matter. It's flesh and bones, he calls it. So if you push into a, a hand or whatever, it's going to give a little bit and there's a feel there. And so he's saying there's a continuity. He's, a phys- he's got a physical body. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it for joy and amazement, he asked them, and this brings me into all kinds of problems and difficulties here, do you have anything here to eat? And they give him a piece of broiled fish of all things. And he took it and ate it in their presence. Some of you know why I have all kinds of difficulties with that. Well, they say, you know, we're to be conformed to Jesus and like him in every respect. So I look forward to being healed from my feelings about fish. But... um, at any rate, it, it also is perplexing in that here's Jesus eating fish. It doesn't lead you to think in about a resurrected digestive system. I mean, what is that? How does it even work? I don't think we can speculate. We don't even know what it's like. We know that there's kind of like a banquet at the resurrection, right? There's this feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are they really eating or is it kind of just a spiritual feast? Kind of like little kids that have a pretend feast, you know, where the kids put out the, you know, the girls especially, the plates and all that. There's nothing on them, you know. But we don't need to eat because we are resurrected. Well, apparently Jesus ate. 
And, and it's remarkable as you look at it, amazingly, four times Jesus eats food or at least prepares to eat food in his brief post-resurrection time with his disciples. There's not a lot of stuff written about the 40 days that Jesus spent with his disciples after his resurrection, before his ascension. But food plays a major role in many of them. He's just kind of eating with them a lot. For example, we already know that it's uh, when he broke the bread with his disciples on the road to Emmaus that their eyes were open. They knew it was Jesus. Now there you say, rightly, he didn't eat. He disappeared. He never ate. But uh, he could have. Clearly, he could have eaten. So he's there about to eat a meal. Uh, we already have the broiled fish here in Luke 24. He's with the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. There you got the fish again and bread. Uh, John 21, 14 through 16. And then with, with the disciples in Acts 1-4, we don't know what they ate at that point, but they did eat. It says, once while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, wait in Jerusalem until the Father pours out his gift from on high, the Holy Spirit. So he's sitting and eating with them. He spends a lot of time eating. Don't you find that interesting? Four times there's the mention of food concerning the resurrection. What does that make you think about heaven? Are we going to be eating in heaven? <laughs> you know? Yeah, fish, lots of fish. <laughs> Looking forward to it. I once got a special dispensation of grace uh, when I was a missionary in Japan for two years to eat sashimi, no less. I mean, that's the big leagues when it comes to fish. Do you guys know what sashimi is? Okay, you probably heard it. Sushi, right? Sushi is just little bits of stuff rolled up in sticky rice in seaweed and cut in medallions. Could be cucumber, could be eggs, could be fish, whatever. Fine, all right? Sashimi, that's like, imagine a T-bone of raw fish flesh cut into strips and you dip it in this wasabi sauce there is nowhere to hide friends there is nowhere to hide there it is it's just nothing but pure fish and it's just right in front of you and god gave me special grace to eat it what was that it's awesome it actually is is not bad it's not bad the one thing about japanese sashimi you just know that that fish you're eating was alive in some ocean somewhere within the last 12 hours they're just astounding at how quickly they get it to the table they're just amazing at that i would never eat sashimi from Kroger's wouldn't do it all right all right they I mean they know what they're doing out there and it was fine but I digress um, Acts 10:41. Uh, Peter mentions it again he was not seen by all the people but by witnesses whom God had already chosen look what he says by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead so it's amazing how much the eating and drinking is a major theme and why why do you think there's so much emphasis on eating here Physical resurrection, bodily resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead in a body. Bodily resurrection. Now we get to the interesting question of, did Jesus have special powers? Well, first of all, you already know the answer to that. Tell me, did Jesus have special powers? Of course he had special powers. But the question is more directly, does his resurrection body behave differently than bodies do? And that's a question where it'd be interesting if Wayne Grudem were here. I think we might disagree a little bit. Because I think, I think that resurrection body seems to have different abilities. Grudem spends a lot of time kind of working on that Jesus didn't walk through walls. Or at least there's no direct evidence that he walked through walls. Now, with him being a good brother that we love and we embrace, why do you think he's working so hard against the idea that Jesus walked through walls? That he's just a ghost. It's ghosts that kind of just pass through walls, right? He's a physical body and physical bodies... As far as we know, now that's the key, you know, they can't just pass through a wall. But what I'm saying is, as far as we know, could it be that there is a spiritual material at a higher level? What, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, a spiritual body. It is sowed a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And I've talked about this before. Please tell me, what is that? 
What is a spiritual body? I don't know. It seems to be a contradiction in, in terms. But Jesus, I think, has a spiritual body, whatever Paul means by it in 1 Corinthians 15. And I think there's some evidence. Now, Grudem spends a lot of time on John 20, where though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. You know what I'm saying? That's the He says, now, that's your evidence that he passed through the walls. That's not good evidence. Because uh, Peter was locked up in a prison and the doors were locked. But what happened to the locked doors? When Peter escaped from prison, what happened to the locked doors? They just opened, you see. Peter didn't pass through any locked doors. The doors opened and he passed through. So could it be that though the doors were locked, they still opened and Jesus entered? So he said it's no good evidence. I'm not going to go there. Let's go back to the tomb itself. Let's talk about the tomb itself. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, he did. And, and you know, definitely he, he, he was able to break, it seems, physical laws beforehand. So you're already in special ground when you're talking about Jesus. That's a good point. I think also like in First John, he says, uh, we don't know what we'll be like, but we will be like Jesus. Right. So even there, John, later on, says we're not sure exactly what it's going to be like. No. He's not sure, but I don't see any contradiction with himself and God making other biological body that can walk through walls. That's right. That's right. Now let's go. Let's go to the. Um, let's go to the uh, tomb. Okay. I'm not going to do the John 20. The doors are locked and all that kind of thing. Let's talk about the tomb itself. All right. What? Why is that evidence that Jesus is able to pass through walls? Well, isn't it obvious? I mean, what is the tomb? The tomb is described. What is it? It's a cave with a large stone in front of it. Do you think it had a window and a back entrance? I mean, think about it. I mean, why would you do that? I mean, you're not trying to make it easy to get in and out because of grave robbers, right? It's just going to have one entrance and there's a large stone in front of the entrance, right? Well, now let's ask Morrison's question. Who moved the stone? Who moved the stone? Does the scripture tell us who moved the stone? Yes, it does. All right. Uh, where is it? I don't even know where I am in my notes. That's what happens when you get off your notes. Where are we? Ah, uh, page eight. Yeah. No, it's not. All right, I've got to find it. Let's look at Matthew. Go, go to Matthew, just in your Bible. I know where it is in Matthew. I don't know where it is in my notes, but I know where it is in the Bible. So let's look at Matthew 28. Yeah, well, there he is rolling the stone. That's, where, that's who put the stone there. I want to know who moved it. Okay, um, so Joseph of Arimathea put the stone there, a huge stone rolled in front of the entrance to the tomb. But to look at Matthew 28 and uh, uh, verse... Uh, 1 through 7. Could somebody read that? Matthew 28, 1 through 7. I love this passage. It's great. <clears throat> Thank you, Stephen. Now, now after the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to rest the grave. And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was like the sun. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who has been crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. Just as he said, Come see the place where he was lying. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. 
and behold, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Okay, what is there in this account? Why do we read Matthew 28, 1 through 7? What does it tell you? It answers a question, a famous question asked by an author. Who moved the stone? An angel. Now, the next question. Why did he move the stone? To let Jesus out? He's not there. And, and actually, that's another key thing from Matthew 28, 1 through 7. He is not here. He rolls the stone and he's not here. So how did he get out? How did he get out? Did he roll it earlier and then roll it back? I would think not. He just moved through the walls. Now, I, I'm thinking that's the evidence. Jesus has, has unusual powers. And all I'm trying to do, I think the, the foundation of this whole discussion is what did Paul mean in 1 Corinthians 15 with spiritual body? What does that expression mean? I don't know, but this seems like it's a spiritual body. He has a body. You can touch him. He can eat fish, but he can get out of a tomb without moving the stone. That's remarkable. And so also then there's the linens. The linens are wrapped around his body with, um, was it myrrh and aloes? Yeah, myrrh and aloes. And, uh, you know, it's myrrh, I, I, as far as I understand, is some kind of a sticky resin from an Ar- Arabic kind of gum tree. And so it's sticky stuff. And it's all wrapped up around his limbs and all that. The linens are evidence of the resurrection in John 20. John MacArthur translates Kami, which is a, the lying there. He saw the strips of linen lying there as wholly undisturbed in their original position. That may be going a little too far with Kami because that's kind of a, it just says lying there. But my feeling is let's, let's imagine that the linens are testifying to resurrection. What would they have to look like to testify to resurrection? If they were unwrapped and in a ball somewhere, that wouldn't testify to resurrection as much as what? If around a body, body's not there. And that's what MacArthur says is the case. And so Jesus somehow got out of that sticky wrapping, came out of that, and then folds up the head covering and puts it off by itself. So the whole thing is just testifying to resurrection, but it also testifies to the body being able to do things ordinarily you couldn't think that it would do. Now, already we know a resurrection body to last forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever must be different than what you have now. So I don't know what happens to metabolism or, or to cell reproduction or eating or digestive systems or any of that. I have no idea. But I know that Jesus' body is different in some sense than what we have now. Then there's the issue of disappearing. Um, Jesus is eating with the disciples at the road to Emmaus, right? And as he's eating, their eyes are opened. They realize it's Jesus. Then what happens next? Poof! Just poof. Can you poof? I can't poof. But uh, Jesus just seems to disappear. Now, Philip kind of poofed because uh, as soon as uh, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, was baptized, you know, the Lord took him away. But, I mean, there's just, there's just different things that happen. Literally, it says he became invisible from their sight. Grudem works on this uh, as well, saying, you know, the same thing happened to Philip. Grudem is not saying that Jesus did not have the power to do all these things. Merely that the text does not force us to teach, passing through walls and sudden disappearances. His motive, I believe, is to maintain the humanity of Christ and to uphold the bodily nature of the resurrection, also to uphold the basic goodness of material things and that the future perfection in the new heavens and the new earth. Material stuff is not evil. And the idea that material stuff is evil comes from philosophy and not from the Bible. God created all all things good at the beginning. So I'm not saying the body is not good. I'm just trying to do justice to the text that say he's able to do these unusual things. 
Then there's flying, but that's not as strong. Uh, you know, it says there actually more passive. He was taken up before their very eyes. So we don't know if he did that or God sent angels to lift him up. I can't imagine that Jesus would need help getting up to heaven. So I think he just ascended. I think he just went up. Uh, and he went up there. Anyway, long story short, Jesus' resurrection was not merely a restoration of his normal physical life. He was raised into a whole new existence in a resurrection body. This body was clearly physical for you could touch it and see that it had flesh and bones and Jesus could eat food. There was clearly continuity from the life before death since Jesus' wounds were still visible in a glorified form, however, not like they were bleeding or needed medical attention. Yet there were some remarkable aspects to his resurrection body. He could not be recognized as Jesus unless he revealed himself. He apparently could pass through stone walls of the tomb and could suddenly disappear. Uh, Finally, both the Father and the Son participated in the resurrection. Uh, Many texts affirm that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. Um, Actually, it's a good place to stop. And that is uh, half past. So let's stop here. Any questions about what we covered so far today? I don't want to hurry through this, so let's stop. Any questions? Comments? One thing to keep in mind is that he is the first fruits. Isn't that wonderful? So there's going to be a big harvest afterwards. He the first fruits and we come later, the harvest. Isn't that exciting? And I look forward to the resurrection body and so should you. You should set your hope on that. As you lament the deterioration of your body through aging and through disease or accidents or other things, as you lament it, don't lament it too much because frankly, you don't want to spend eternity in this body anyway, do you? Uh, it is sown in, in dishonor, the Bible says. It's raised in glory. So let's look forward to that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the glory of the resurrection body. We thank you for the glory of Jesus' resurrection body. We thank you that it is the pattern to which we are going to be conformed when we are glorified. We look forward to that, Lord. We pray that we would set our hope on things above and on future things and not be too attached to this present form of life which is passing away. Father, I I look forward to the day when we are in the new uh, era, the new age. The old order of things will have been passed away and all things have become new. We thank you that the resurrection accounts of Jesus uh, give us a glimpse and a foretaste of what that will be like for all of us. But we know that none of us have a glory apart from Jesus. Our glory is really his glory. And uh, we look forward to uh, being drawn up into his resurrection and receiving the benefits uh, from what he did, both at the cross and the empty tomb. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.